If you guys want to turn your Bibles to Hebrews 2, verse 5, that's, uh, that's what we'll be at this morning. I hope uh, all of our hearts are prepared to hear, hear the Word of God now, especially after that reading of, of Psalm 14 and just singing such wonderful songs. Uh, it's, it's amazing how well all of that fits in to the text we're looking at today in God's holy word. Uh, just, just thinking of Psalm 14 and the manner in which the law is stated and then that plea is, is found. Oh, that salvation would come. And, and when, when, man's, when man's fallenness is shown in Psalm 14, we're then met in the last verse with salvation. With, with something other than man that can bring, up, bring about the redemption. And that's, that's what we're going to be looking at today in Hebrews chapter 2. I was, I was listening to a song this week by a man named Brian Save. Um, and one of his newer songs is called Drawing Blood. And, and in this song, he presents the curse that has fallen upon this world. And, and the death and the mourning and the sorrow and the pain it brings. And... and and, and the chorus, as, as he gets into this song, it starts to say, sometimes things just go wrong. You feel this, this curse drawing blood. And then he ends the entire song by saying, Lord, Lord, would you come? Lord, would you come defeat this curse? Would, would you destroy this curse so that we can praise you bringing in the sheaves? And that's really what we're going to see today in our passage, is, is this thought of redemption, this proclamation of redemption from the curse that fell upon, Na- uh, fell upon the creation at the fall. Um, so yeah, Hebrews 2.5, this, I, I pray, will be an absolute joy for all of us. Um, and there's a certain term I want us to understand as we began this passage today. It's the underlying thought of the entire book of Hebrews. Um, it, we've actually already talked about it, at least not, not in word, but, but in detail. Um, this, this term is bicovenantal, bicovenantal theology. Um, as Reformed Baptists, we believe in what we call covenantal theology. The, 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 the term covenantal theology or covenant theology is the fact that God has had one plan of redemption throughout all of history, which was revealed in various stages. Um, God revealed the gospel, first of all, to Adam in the promise of salvation by the seed of a woman, and afterwards by further steps until the full discovery thereof was completed in the New Testament. However, you'll notice I said bicovenantal. Actually, Reformed tradition has commonly spoken of two covenants, a second way, or probably better labeled a first way, in which man is actually able to obtain life. This was the promise that was made to Adam in the Garden of Eden, and it's called the covenant of works. This is, this is altogether separate from the covenant of grace. God promised to Adam in the Garden life upon obedience to his commands and death upon disobedience of them. Now, as we all know, Adam failed in obedience to that command. Adam fell and plunged all of mankind into absolute sin and misery. Not one of Adam's posterity is able to keep the covenant of works and obtain life by it. However, we are told in the passage today of one man who does. And one man alone who does. 
What our passage today is, it does is it points us to the creation order in which God established and the, God's intention for mankind. And then it shows us how that was fulfilled in the one man who was able to keep the covenant of works, Jesus Christ. And so what we'll do is we'll behold man's fallen state and inability to keep such a covenant starting at Adam. And then we'll be brought forward to the one man who was able to keep that covenant and bring everlasting life and redemption to all who believe in him. So although Adam and Eve were removed from the garden and separated from the tree of life due to their disobedience, what we behold in Christ is a plan of salvation that has brought us back into an everlasting dwelling place to eat of the tree of life for all eternity. So let's read our text this morning and see just how sufficient Jesus Christ is. Verse 5 of chapter 2, Hebrews For it was not to angels the God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. Therefore, he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name in the midst of the congregation. I'm sorry, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And deliver all of those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Join me in prayer. Christ, we come before you today as you have revealed yourself in your holy word. And we pray, we pray that you would make known your gracious will for us, your gracious plan of redemption, the the sufficiency of your active and passive obedience, Lord, would, would you show us, would you show us just how reliant upon you we must be? Would you show us the true nature of the, of, of, of that, that word you proclaim that apart from you, we could do nothing? We are so, so wanting to look to ourselves. But help us to behold you and to look to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.
So three weeks ago, if you remember, we saw in verse 2 of chapter 1 that Christ has been appointed by God as the heir of all things. Then in verse 4 of the same chapter, we were told that he has become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Today in Hebrews chapter 2, this point will be expounded as we examine the manner in which that took place as well as what that means for us. In other words, Christ's inheritance of the world to come is fleshed out in today's passage. We see how that happens and what it means. The transition into our passage today is important. It has already been made clear that Christ is superior to angels in his name, kingdom, office, and even retribution. But now we are reminded of his great inheritance as we are told it's not to angels. It's not to angels that God subjected the world to come. This, this world to come is spoken of a ton in Hebrews, and I think it's important that we understand what the author of Hebrews is speaking of. And then after we establish what the world to come is, then I'll give a kind of outline for, for the rest of the passage, um, and, and we'll go through how that world to come is Christ's. Notice then that the author says the world to come is something we have already been speaking of. In other words, when the author began to speak of Christ's covenant as greater than the covenant as revealed by angels, he's already begun to speak of this world that is to come. I made the point two weeks ago, um, as, as we talked about verse or chapter 1, I believe, verse 6, when it talks about God bringing the firstborn into the world, he's talking about the world to come. He's, he's talking about the Father exalting the Son above the angels and bringing him into his inheritance. This fits exactly with this passage that says we've already been speaking of this world to come. Thus it follows that Christ has a throne that is forever and ever ruling and reigning with righteousness. Yet at the same time, in chapter 1, we are able to say that heaven and earth will be changed like a garment. They'll be rolled up like a scroll. They'll pass away. But Christ is the same and his years have no end. So, so we see an obvious difference between the world that is now and the world that is to come. Christ's kingdom is forever. The kingdoms of, kingdoms of this world will perish. So, so we're constantly exhorted throughout Hebrews to seek the, the kingdom which cannot be shaken. The, the world to come of which we are speaking is shown in Hebrews 3-4 through 4 to be the reality of the promised land which our greater Moses brings us to. In chapter, 6, 12, in chapter 6, verse 12, this world to come is called the promises because it is the consummation of every promise ever made in Jesus Christ. Chapter 9, 12 describes this as an eternal redemption. Verse 15 of the same chapter, an eternal inheritance. The warning passage in chapter 10 speaks of our need of endurance so that we have, when we have done the will of God, we may receive what was promised. This is followed by chapter 11, which speaks time and time again of faithful men who pleased God by looking forward to a kingdom or a city which has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Chapter 12, 28 says, We have received a kingdom which cannot be shaken. With all these principles being established, the author exhorts in the very last chapter of Hebrews that we should bear the same reproach as Christ. Because here we have no lasting city, but we seek the one which is to come. 
And so this world to come becomes a foundational point of Hebrews, which the author is constantly going to exhort us to look to because it's the inheritance that our great Redeemer has received. And so we're not to look at the things of this world. We're not to look to the, to the passing realities that are here. We're supposed to look to the internal, eternal inheritance that is found in Christ and in Christ alone. A couple, um, probably, I guess probably two months ago now, I think, I um, kind of defined what the, this, this heavenly Jerusalem, what this world to come looks like. Um, that's not really my goal today. Let us move forward and take note of the fact that Christ is the king of the world to come. That's the author's point. Christ is the king of the world to come. Angels are mediators of the covenant which condemned mankind and plunged this world into sin and misery. Christ is the mediator of a covenant which brings a new world of redemption to his people. So for note takers, four points I want to preach today. Point one, man's original dominion. This point will address verses five through eight. It'll be about the dominion mandate. Point two is man's current state. It's a very short point. It addresses only the second half of verse eight and deals with the fact that we not, do not currently possess what Psalm 8 describes. Point three, Christ's dominion. This is found in verses, verse 9, the first part of verse 9, where we're told that Christ is crowned with glory and honor and has fulfilled what fallen man could not. This will be followed by one more point, which seeks to describe how Christ did this. Point four, the means of fulfillment. Means of fulfillment will address verses 9 all the way through to the end of this chapter, verse 18. It'll address the, the way in which Christ has fulfilled all of this. So to repeat, point one is man's original dominion, point two, man's current state, point three, Christ's dominion, and point four, the means of fulfillment. So let's look at verse six of chapter two, where we read that it has been testified somewhere. It's been testified somewhere, and this is followed by a quote from Psalm 8, which I've preached through Psalm 8 in the past. Um, and what Psalm 8 does is it describes Adam and it describes Christ. Psalm 8 looks at the infiniteness of the sky above and asks the question, what is man? What is man, God, that you are mindful of him, or, or the son of man, Lord, that you would, you would take care of him? And, and once we've established that understanding that Psalm 8 is about mankind, the author goes on in the next two verses to quote verses um, six, 5 and 6 of the psalm to show us that man is, as he says, a little lower than the angels, but will be crowned with glory and honor with everything subjected to him. Now, as I've stated, point one is about man's original dominion. Verses 7 through 8 of Psalm 8 describe man having dominion over sheep and oxen, plants and trees, beasts, birds, fish, all the works of God's hands. God gave Adam the command to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. He left nothing, the psalm says, outside of his control. Thus, point one is clear. Man originally had dominion given by God. This, this was God's intention for mankind, dominion. And this was not repealed after the fall, which we see by the fact that Psalm 8 exists. That this, this, this mandate, this dominion, is still spoken of after the fall. 
The command for mankind to subdue the earth still stands today. It is God's plan and intent that his image bearers have dominion over his creation. But yet so quickly, we digress to point two, man's current state. It doesn't take a genius to know that man does not have the control or dominion over this earth that he ought to have. The author of Hebrews clearly states in the second half of verse 8, at present, we do not yet see everything. We do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Although Psalm 8 says that God has given us dominion over all the works of his hands, we behold so often in the news how completely flipped and twisted this is. MSN published an article on January 10th. It was titled, Animals That Kill the Most People. At the very top of the list were mosquitoes. Top of the list were mosquitoes, and right below them, coming from MSN's godless worldview, were humans. In fact, the entire article started with a sentence, nature's beauty often comes with a lethal side. It seems even with the recognition that creation is absolutely amazing, nature's beauty, and like David, we can stare up in the night sky and behold the majesty of God, we must also recognize that it's not what it ought to be. It has a lethal side. Those made in the image of God are being killed by mosquitoes and perhaps even worse, by other image bearers. The view of God's perfect order presented in Psalm 8 was never accomplished in Adam who sinned against God by listening to a snake, the animal he was commanded to take dominion over. Instead, the life promised to Adam for obedience was lost and death is now imminent to all. Man's current state is one of confusion, sin, misery, pain, corruption, disorder, fallenness, and all we do by nature as sons of Adam is continue in that wretchedness. And so it is evident, says Calvin, that God's bounty belongs not to us until the right lost in Adam be restored to Christ. So we make it to point three, looking at verse nine, Christ's dominion. It is here that we are introduced to the covenant of grace, a covenant that relies on Christ's obedience alone rather than ours. Verse nine says that we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor. This is the exact wording of Psalm 8 that we just read. However, now it is applied to Christ. It's it's applied to one man specifically, which the author titles, namely, Jesus. In fact, this is the first time we see the name of Jesus appear in Hebrews, and it's in a specific context. Before, he's been called God's son in relation to the title given him by the Father in his exaltation. But now, as we speak to the humanity of Christ, the author shows us his human name. He says, here's Jesus of Nazareth, the historical figure who walked the earth. He was made lower than the angels by his taking on human nature and becoming under the law in order that as our great second Adam as our great second Adam, he could perfectly obey the law. Adam was put in the garden, a world of righteousness. 
He had everything going for him, and he was told to obey, and he completely failed. Christ, as the great second Adam, was put in the wilderness, in a world surrounded by sin, with Satan tempting him, and he prevailed. Psalm 8 tells us, you've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. The world to come is completely and totally subjected to the historical person, Jesus of Nazareth. He is the one who has perfectly obeyed the covenant made with Adam and been crowned with glory and honor, putting all things, the Bible says, under his feet. And if we could just stop today for a second and think about the reality of that. So often we distance ourselves from the humanity of Christ and the kingship of Christ. But we shouldn't. We, we need to understand that Christ was a human like unto us in our weaknesses. He felt the things we feel. He, he walked the earth. He was tempted as we are, yet without sin. And, and can you imagine even for a second, knowing your failure and knowing your temptations and desires, the thought that you would somehow be able to conquer sin, Yet Christ, with temptations like unto us, did so. When we distance the thought of Christ being human, we distance, the, distance ourselves from the reality that he can sympathize with us. That when we sin and when we fall, he understands that weakness, and he can help us through it as one who has actually conquered and been victorious over sin. We'll get more into this point later, but it is a beautiful point. So keep this in mind. Keep this in mind when Jesus' name appears in Hebrews. The author is pointing us to the historical person. He's pointing us to the humanity of Jesus Christ. So, we have this man, Jesus, who has established dominion, fulfilled the dominion mandate, the great second Adam. But there's more to this doctrine than his active obedience in regaining for himself what was lost in Adam. The end of verse 9 is going to tell us that Christ would taste death for everyone. This brings us to point four, the means of fulfillment. Christ, as he was walking toward Calvary, said in John 12, 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. How would this happen? Jesus continues on to say, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So in Christ's theology, exaltation is the logical result of humiliation. And thus the author now switches angles and looks at Christ's suffering here in the following verses. The perfect Son of God completes his active obedience in passive obedience by submitting to the Father and being crucified on the cross for our sins, for our punishment and therefore is glorified by the Father as the great second Adam who is pure in the sight of God. This suffering, verse 9 says, was by the grace of God, which points us to the character of God as the reason which Christ had to suffer. 
Verse 10 does the same thing when the Holy Spirit tells us that it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Delich says it was an inward, not an outward necessity. In other words, the very justice of God, the very justice of God required that satisfaction be made. It was, it was fitting for the Father to require Christ to suffer in order that justice and his nature be satisfied. Brown would say it like this. It becomes him for whom all things and by whom are all things to make it evident that whatever disturbs the order of God's government is an evil thing. And the direct and obvious way of dealing with this is to punish the sinner. But if God in his sovereign kindness, is determined to save the sinner, it must be in such a way that the honor of the divine character and law are at least equally supported as they would have been by the punishment of the sinner. So, so since we have God, who all things exist by and for, then when creation rebels and neglects to serve their creator, they must be punished. Thus it becomes God in his grace to have Christ drink the cup of wrath in order that poor wretches like ourselves can be saved. In this way, we read that Christ, as the founder or captain of our salvation, was made perfect through suffering. The thought of Christ being made perfect has nothing to do with, with, with somehow a taking away of sin and everything to do with compatibility and, and fitness you know what I mean. Um, it has everything to do with, with Christ being fit for the role of which the Father appointed him. In order for God to be the captain of our salvation, he had to become man. Why? Because it became God. That by his grace, he would save sinners. Yet justice cannot just go out the window in saving sinners. And God cannot just allow unrighteous men into the kingdom without somehow making their sin dealt with. And so it became God that by his grace, Christ would suffer and take the punishment. It became God for whom and by whom are all things that in fitting with his perfect plan of justice and nature of justice throughout all eternity, he would find a way to save destitute and afflicted sinners like ourselves while his justice and righteousness is still honored. Our sin cannot be taken care of or put on anyone else besides a man. God had to become man. Thus, verse 11 will say that he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all of one source. Meaning we all come from the same stock. We're all human. The, the encouragement here is that Christ, the Christ who sanctifies you is perfect. He's perfected for that role because he understands you personally. As we've already read, this Christ who tasted Death in our stead and brings us to himself in holiness is Jesus, who walked through all the temptations we do and was victorious. We don't have a brutal taskmaster who simply tells us to make it through this world without ever giving us the help that we need to do it. We have Jesus, who in verse 11 is not ashamed to call us 
brothers. He says unto the Father in verse 11, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. Christ doesn't merely tell us to worship God. He leads us as brothers in the worship of the Father. Not only that, verse 13, Christ entrusts himself to the Father, saying, I will put my trust in him. If anyone is to imagine that obedience for Christ was, was simply an easy thing that required no entrusting himself to the Father, you need to hear the message of Hebrews. It became God, by his grace, to make Christ Man of one source with us, with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, meaning that Jesus had to trust the Father's will even when he struggled in the Garden of Gethsemane. He had to put his trust in the Father when the whole world was united against him and the pains of hell were coming upon him. And when he was standing there, hanging there, crucified on the cross, yet he still cried out, My God, my God. The author cites one more Old Testament reference to prove his point. Behold, Jesus says in verse 13, I and the children God has given me. Not merely spiritual generation, but natural generation in regards to Christ's humanity. He speaks of the children given to Christ by the Father to show us in verse 14 that since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. These are not Christ's children. The thought here is rather that the Father has given them to Christ as brothers. They're the Father's children. So, so God has given them to Christ as brothers that they may be bought by the blood of Christ and be his brother, all of them being sons of the Father. So in regards to point four and the means of fulfillment, we've addressed that it was of necessity because of the nature of God that Jesus would suffer as our brother and therefore be crowned with glory and honor. Now we see the second part of the fulfillment, which is the efficacy or the necessary effect of Christ's humiliation and suffering. Look at the second half of verse 14. Through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is, the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. We begin to see the fulfillment of Psalm 8, the Christ obtained, now transferred to us. It was the devil who deceived Eve in the garden and gave the fruit, and Eve gave the fruit to Adam. From this sin came the promise of God that the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent, the devil. So, so the dominion mandate of Genesis was failed because of sin. The second Adam comes against that serpent in the wilderness and prevails over sin. Christ lives a life of complete obedience under the law and fulfills the dominion mandate, being crowned now with glory and honor. But he is also, as verse 10 says, the captain, the captain, the founder of our salvation, meaning that he goes before us and wins the battle for us. Because Christ overcame sin, his death was not the victory of the devil, rather his death was victory over the devil. 
He didn't die because he had to make some sort of reconciliation or, or, or take some punishment for his own sin. He died in order that the sins of his brothers would be atoned for. And thus, he saved his brothers from death, defeating the curse that fell upon mankind in the garden. In dying, Christ took the power of sin the devil levied against God's creation. We can rightly say as Christians, the devil has been defeated. He holds no power over God's church. Any power he ever had was reliant upon us being sinners and deserving of death. But this verse says that Jesus delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. This is a verse we ought to forever rejoice in. Because this verse doesn't speak to to the strong and the healthy. This verse speaks to the weak, unhealthy sinner, curled up in the corner, unable to help himself because through fear of death, he's enslaved. This verse doesn't say Jesus came to deliver all of those who freely work for him. He came to deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Delich says this verse extends the intention of Christ's work to all without exception whom those limits comprise. His, works, his work was designed not for beings exempt from death, but for beings held in bondage by the fear of death. For these alone, but for all these without exception. What a joy that is. Pictured in this passage is a great captain of our salvation. One who efficiently delivers those in bondage. God's elect, held in bondage by the fear of death and unable to deliver themselves from the power of the devil, are set free by a brother much more powerful than they. Lest anyone get confused here, Christ came with a specific purpose. Verse 16, he came not to help the, the, came not to help the angels, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Jesus came with a purpose and he accomplished this sufficiently. His duty was not to redeem non-corporal ministers, but to help the offspring of Abraham. An offspring of Abraham here is synonymous with the all who fear death. The flow of this passage could could be captured like this. Jesus of Nazareth was born a descendant of Abraham. He is a natural born son of Abraham. He actively obeys the father and his righteousness is imputed to us. In in, in other words, when we stand before God's... Oh man, I'm just messing up my words. When we stand before God, wow. When we stand before God, our father will not see our sin. Our Father will see the imputed righteousness of Christ. Our Father will see Christ in his work rather than ours. Our righteousness comes not by God imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience unto us as our righteousness, but by imputing Christ's active obedience unto the whole law and passive obedience in his death for our whole and soul righteousness. This is why Jesus is called the founder of our salvation. Because he does everything. 
We are found righteous because we are united to him, not only in his work, but in his person. Therefore, the only conclusion we can come to, if we're going to consistently apply the doctrine of imputation, that if we be found united and baptized into Christ, then we are the offspring of Abraham. If this is not true, then this passage is not speaking to our consolation. But as I said, Christ in his person and in his work has been imputed to us as believers. And therefore the author of Hebrews can rightly say that Christ came to save his brothers, the offspring of Abraham. This, this is only confirmed all the more in verse 17 when we're told that Christ had to be made like his brothers. So because he's seeking to save the offspring of Abraham, therefore what? He had to be made like his brothers, the offspring of Abraham. In every respect, it says. He had to take on our nature and our infirmities, our frailty and our weakness, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. This is a point that we're going to spend weeks on as we get deeper into Hebrews. The mercifulness, the mercy, the mercy and the faithfulness that, that is found in the person and work of Christ is so extensive. Here the author points to one specific thing that our great high priest did in regards to this mercy and faithfulness. He made propitiation for the sins of the people. This word propitiation has to be explained because it's misconstrued so often. Many people have suggested that this word has no relevance to the actual satisfaction of divine wrath against sin. Listen, listen to this quote. And, and by the way, when I, when I say this next quote, I'm not endorsing this. This is a bad thing. Don't believe it. Listen to this. The true meaning of the offering of Christ concentrates, therefore, not upon divine justice, but upon human character. Not upon the remission of penalty for a consideration, but upon the deliverance from penalty through moral transformation. Not upon satisfying divine justice, but upon bringing estranged man into harmony with God. End quote. May I suggest to you that everything that man just said propitiation does not have to do with is exactly what it has to do with. Christ's offering is about divine justice. It is about remission of penalty. It is about bringing a strange man into harmony with God by satisfying divine justice. John Owen says this in regards to the word propitiation. It can mean, first, an offense, crime, guilt, or debt to be taken away. Secondly, a person offended to be pacified, atoned, or reconciled. Thirdly, a person offending to be pardoned or accepted. And fourthly, a sacrifice or other means of making the atonement. The point, as, as Dr. Martin would say, is that Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice for the sins of his people in order to appease or pacify the wrath of him who is a consuming fire. This is important. Because if Christ didn't take the wrath of God, then we still have to deal with the wrath of God. If Christ did not take the wrath of God, then we still have punishment awaiting us. So the propitiation of sin 
is the pacifying of an offended God by the due penalty being poured out, in this case, upon Christ. If we were to propitiate our own sin, the wrath would be poured out on us. When Christ is spoken of as the propitiation for our sin, the thought is that divine wrath from the Father was poured out upon Christ as he hung there on that Christ. And Christ experienced, as it were, the depths of hell and punishment in order that we would be freed from it by God's grace. Our Jesus was made under the law and did perfectly fulfill it, and underwent the punishment due to us, which we should have borne and suffered, being made sin and a curse for us, says our confession. The mercy and faithfulness of Christ as our high priest is shown specifically in this act. That he underwent all the penalties due unto us. He, he looked upon us, and knowing what we rightfully deserved in our sin took it all. He in mercy came down and became sin on our behalf that we would have his righteousness. Therefore, by this propitiation, he faithfully brings us to himself, clean and spotless, all our sin taken care of. And if we understand everything we've just discussed, then this last verse of Hebrews chapter 2 becomes the greatest hope and consolation. Verse 16 of chapter 2. Sorry, verse 18. Because he himself, Christ himself, has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is something we need to be reminded of constantly because we suffer. And the world likes to tell everybody, you're not in this alone. Well, that's great. Now we're all suffering and we have no solution. That's not what the author of Hebrews points us to. Yes, we have community. Yes, that's an amazing thing. But the author of Hebrews points us to someone who suffered, but was victorious over suffering. One who went through this world and all the pains thereof, yet rose victorious from the grave and is now crowned with glory and honor as our captain and founder of our salvation. When we have a brother or a sister who is suffering, whether that be with sin or the troubles of our pilgrimage here, the answer does not lie in, in, in us necessarily, but beyond us. Our answer does not end at we're all in this together, but it follows through to the point that Jesus, as our great hope, has passed through suffering into the eternal bliss of glory. Our salvation and our redemption says you have a captain, you have a founder, you have a savior who was made perfect through suffering. The object of the statement here isn't just that Christ suffered certain things so that he can sympathize with you sometimes. This is all inclusive. The founder of our salvation was made perfect through suffering. He is able to sympathize with us in all things. As the passage says, he himself has suffered when tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. 
There's, there's no sin too great or too small for Christ to sympathize with. There's no trouble too great or too small for Christ to sympathize with. The author of Hebrews says he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. That he would become our merciful and faithful high priest. We will be tempted. And we will be assailed by the desires of this world. Christ is not far from us in those moments. However pained and distant we may feel, your Savior, dear Christian, didn't just not disobey. He actively obeyed. He didn't just not sin. He destroyed the devil. He didn't just die. He defeated death. The pain is real. We live in a world under a curse because of our failure to obey God. We as humans feel the pains of that curse upon us. Jesus felt the pains of that curse. Perhaps as we fight against sin, the reality of just how deep that sin goes becomes all the more real to us. And as we fight against the curse of this world, it perhaps becomes all the more real how far-reaching that curse is. We ought to remember in those moments that there is one. There is one who defeated the curse, who is victorious over sin and put death to death. Weary, struggling, burdened pilgrim, remember, you have a Christ who is crowned with glory and honor, and he is merciful and faithful to bring you to himself. So let's bring this all to a close and bring this entire thought of this chapter together since it's a longer passage. God declared in Psalm 8 that man would have dominion over everything. Man failed to establish dominion and rather plunged himself into lifelong slavery to the fear of death. God sent his only son, born of a virgin under the law, a brother like unto us, who had to put his trust in God in order that Jesus in order that, that through Jesus' active obedience, the dominion mandate would be fulfilled, and then through his passive obedience, he is imputed with our sin so that we can be brought near to God. And in Christ's resurrection, where he is crowned with glory and honor, his righteousness is imputed to us so that we may receive the reward he earned. And so concludes the author. We can look to the one who has already accomplished everything needed for our redemption and salvation. And when we're tempted, we know that Jesus was tempted as well. And he suffered. But he overcame. And we too will overcome by the blood of the Lamb. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we go into communion and as, as we behold your table, help us, help us to keep Christ forefront on our minds. Help us as we sing this last song to proclaim that our worth is not in what we own and to truly believe that. To, to believe that all the worth we have and ever will have comes from the blood of Christ that flowed at the cross. 
That we may, as we come to your table this morning, rejoice in our great Redeemer. Rejoice in the great salvation. Rejoice in the presence of our High Priest, who is merciful and faithful to us. Who understands us. Who is able to be there in our sin and weakness and temptation. And and is able to lead us in the way of triumph. Father, we await the day when we behold you in glory when we no longer see in a mirror dimly, but when we get to be handed communion by Christ himself and feast and dine for all eternity in joyful, jubilant praise of you. We pray this in Christ's name. With the, really the entire book of Hebrews being such a reminder to us of that which the Lord's Supper reminds us of, is the sufficiency of Christ in his once and for all sacrifice. So as we enter into communion, I just want to read from Hebrews chapter 13, verse 10 and through 14, which says, We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat, feeding upon the salvation of Christ. Uh, that, that altar that is only accessible through those who believe in Christ. And that's making a stark separation between clinging to Christ and his sufficiency versus uh, our own acts of whatever it may be, merit of, of goodness or anything like that. So he says, We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sins are burnt outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate as he bled and died on Golgotha. He says, in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here... We have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come, that city that is to come, uh, the eternal inheritance that uh, can only be entered through the gate whom is Christ. And so this morning, this rejoice as we partake in communion and rejoice on uh, the finished work of Christ on the cross. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this ordinance each and every week to, to bring us into remembrance of the sufficiency of your son, the great sacrifice where he gave his body and his blood poured out for an unworthy people. Father, I pray this morning that we approach the Lord's Supper with great rejoice in knowing that it is finished. Let us not cling to anything of ourselves, but help us each and every day fixing our eyes upon Christ Jesus. Father, bless the elements, set them aside for a holy use. Father, I pray that we partake in them in such a manner through the lens of Christ who is the Holy One. Pray this in his precious name. Amen.